One of the things I love about Christmas time, uh, number one, you can wear a shirt made out of underwear, praise God, right? Already told you that. But most importantly is that Jesus is literally everywhere you look during this season. He's on billboards. I've seen him in snow globes. He's referenced on television shows, on Christmas tree ornaments. I recently saw a gluten-free Jesus Christmas cookie for sale. I passed. Not because I don't love Jesus. I love gluten, right? Passed. And so conversations about Jesus this time of the year should be easy to come by because uh, he is the focus of this season, and we see that everywhere, even in our secular culture. One of the easiest ways to ease into a gospel conversation during this season is to talk about Christmas music. How many of you are those weirdos who start listening to Christmas music the day after Thanksgiving? Anybody in here like that? Yeah, what's, I hope you get saved today. All right, so... Some people love Christmas music, some people not so much. Here's what I'll say about the whole situation. Paul McCartney's song, Wonderful Christmas, is an abomination. Amen? Worst Christmas song ever. And here's what else you need to know. A lot of the lyrics to your favorite Christmas songs aren't always biblically accurate. Sometimes the writers took a little liberty uh, in interpreting their songs in the Bible. For instance, uh, there's a song, We Three Kings of Orient. It's a popular song. It's what the kids today would call a banger, if you will, right? Uh, So this song insinuates by the title that these men were kings. And I did some fact-checking and read my Bible, and actually the Bible doesn't call them kings. It just calls them wise men. And actually, Scripture says there were three gifts. It doesn't necessarily say there were three wise men, even though there were plural. It doesn't actually say that. So there's little liberty there, creative liberty. But one of the things that the song does get right is the fact that there's a star sovereignly and providentially guiding people to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 2, our text this morning, actually calls it his star. And so God is still at work guiding people to Jesus, but now, instead of stars, God wants to use us. And so whether your neighbor realized or not, you're a star, right? God's using us to speak the message of Christmas uh, still today. And so the challenge is this, is that while not stars are not controversial, Uh, talking about religion, uh, certainly at family gatherings and talking about Jesus, uh, can be controversial. No one is intimidated by the eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus on your Christmas card, right? Lots of people don't know what to do with, though, the Jesus uh, who flipped over tables in the temple. He has teeth. Lots of people don't know what to do when Jesus said, hey, if they hate you or hated me, they're going to hate you. When Jesus said, no one's going to heaven apart from me, that is an exclusive claim in a culture of inclusivism to the point where truth is now relative to satisfy that cultural demand. And so that can create some challenges about speaking up for Jesus, even in a season where we're focusing and celebrating uh, his birth. And so here's what I want us to get to in the text this morning. As you share the gospel with people during the season, as you uh, invite people to our Christmas Eve services, shameless plug right there, right? Uh, One of the things you're going to find is that people are going to respond in various ways, and that's not your fault or your responsibility, because here's what we learn in Matthew chapter 2. From the very first announcement of the coming king, people responded in various ways to Jesus, and guess what? All of us this morning are living out a response to the Christ of Christmas that we're going to see illustrated here in Matthew chapter 2. So let's pick up the text. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 this morning. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, 
In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's a quote from Micah chapter 5. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And so what we find here, uh, just in this brief section of the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 2, is the reception given to Jesus on the very first Christmas morning, which includes uh, our response to Jesus and the response of all the people that we may have an opportunity to speak up about Jesus during this Christmas season. So basically, here's what I want you to find this morning. This morning, all of us are in one of three categories in how we respond to the Christ of Christmas, just like they were on that first Christmas. So three basic responses to the announcement of Jesus, the coming King. First off, we see is some people will outwardly oppose Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning, uh, uh, surely that's not you, right? You're thinking, uh, I'm at church. I'm not actively, outwardly campaigning against Jesus. I'm not actively trying to squash his kingdom. I'm here. I'm sitting in church. And I, and I know some people like that. They get incredibly argumentative about Jesus, about Christianity. They're, they claim to be atheists or agnostics. They you know, push the cultural agenda where all truth is uh, truth and culture and so, but this was Herod's response here in Matthew chapter 2. Herod the Great ruled Israel and Judah for nearly 33 years. Uh, he was known for extensive building projects all throughout the region. He had a temple in most major cities, uh, and so he had some leadership capabilities, we would say, but, but here's the dark side of Herod. He was also incredibly cruel, and he was a teeny bit paranoid. Here's why I say that. He killed his own wife, his sons, and relatives in order to protect against anyone who may try to dethrone him and his kingdom. Just a little bit paranoid. And he wasn't going to let this so-called king of the Jews and all the prophecies threaten his reign as the king, any mention of another king put Herod on the defense and incited his full wrath. And so Herod openly and outwardly uh, opposes Jesus. In the book of Luke, we see a record of that. We see Herod ordering the killing of all male children under the age of two. He wasn't taking any chances. He knew how old Jesus would have been based on the prophecies. He says, hey, just to cover all my bases that any male child 
under the age of two, I'm going to have them exterminated because uh, under no circumstances is he willing to release his authority as king. There was no competition for Herod in the rule of his king. And so Matthew says this, it said Herod was troubled. It said he had some, probably some sleepless nights. He began to wring his hands, this idea, all this work he had done to expand his authority, all this uh, things he had done to expand his empire, his influence, his name, his reputation, making his name great. The thing that uh, grieved him the worst was the thought that another king would come and usurp his authority or his influence to the point he was willing to kill his own wife and sons. And so Herod did exactly what we would think he would do. He began to take matters into his own hands. He began to believe that the end justified means and whatever it took to engineer this outcome where I stay in control, I'm willing to do that so to get what I want. Look at verses 7 and 8. What does he do? He chose to deceive the wise men. Verses 7 and 8, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Just a little, uh, little white lie there at the end, right? He said, hey, when you, when you find it out, if you could, text me and let me know, right? Because I'm going to show up too and I too am going to pledge allegiance to this king. And nothing could have been further from the truth. And so what does he do? He begins to put a plan in place to take Jesus out. We have a phrase that we've used here over the years. And it goes something like this. Hopefully this sounds familiar. People do what they do because their heart wants what it wants. And their heart wants what it wants because they believe what they believe. And we look at the response of Herod to outwardly oppose Jesus, to engineer circumstances, to lie, to kill, to do all these kinds of things. Why? Because what Herod did, lied to the wise men, is because his heart wanted the control and the power and the prestige of being the undisputed king. No one could challenge his kingdom. And so what did he believe? That Jesus was coming not to offer a new and better kingdom to everyone who believed, but to threaten the very thing that Herod had formed his life and identity on. Control and power and prestige of king. Now, what Herod did is this violently and openly opposed anyone who threatened his kingship. And none of us this morning would put ourselves into that category. None of us were here at church, right? You're preaching to the choir. None of us will say, I'm, I'm actively ca uh, campaigning against Jesus and his rule and his reign and his authority. I mean, I, I'm at church this morning. But if, if we're honest this morning, there are some similarities between us and Herod. And sometimes in our life, if we're honest, Sometimes there's a competition to be king over our hearts. Sometimes there's a competition about who's really in charge of certain areas of our life. That yes, we're totally fine with trusting Jesus with our eternity, but there are other subjects between now and heaven where Jesus is hands off. And sometimes those idols take root in our hearts. Sometimes it's control. Sometimes it's our children, their success. Sometimes it's our jobs or our homes or our finances sometimes it's even the idol of christmas 
that I'm so consumed with squeezing every moment and memory out of the season that I spend little time worshiping Jesus and I just totally capitulate to the consumer Christian culture. And so maybe we would say, hey, I'm not actively campaigning against Jesus. I'm at church after all. But here's the question we all should wrestle with in looking at Herod. Are there areas of our life this morning we're battling Jesus for control? Because that was the issue with Herod. If Jesus just come and said, hey, I'm a teacher, no big deal. If Jesus just come and said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a healer, no big deal. But when Jesus and the prophecy said he is coming to be a king of the Jews, Herod said, I cannot have that. And the battle was on. And so Herod outwardly opposed him. And if we're not careful, guess what? A little Herod can creep into our hearts this season. We're actively battling Jesus for the control of our hearts. And so maybe the gift we give Jesus this year is the total surrender of our lives. Now, let me tell you what that means. That means surrendering outcomes. How many of you are sitting next to a control freak? Would you just raise up your hand? Yeah, you're scared. That's fine, right? Listen, I'm one. I want an engineer outcomes. But when I give up control... In the meantime, I often lose control of the outcome of my life. And Herod could not imagine an outcome that was going to remove him from his place, what he thought of rightful kingship authority. And so he began to outwardly campaign against Jesus and the control that Jesus was threatening in Herod's heart. Here's what's interesting about the text as well, and then we'll move on. Herod believed at some level in Jesus. And the reason I know that is because he saw him as a threat to his throne and believed enough to do something about the problem that was arising in Jerusalem. Herod was by no means an atheist when it came to the claims of Jesus, but Herod neither had any desire to live with a bowed knee or a surrendered heart to this new king of the Jews. And so Herod outwardly opposed Jesus. And some people you encounter are going to outwardly oppose Jesus. Not because of what he taught, but because of the authority that he has. And if we're not careful this morning, even though we're in church, there could be areas of our life where we actively campaign against Jesus' authority over those areas. The next set of people who respond to Jesus, we see in the text here, are the priests and the scribes. And how they responded is they inwardly oppose Jesus. They're not out on the attack they're not issuing decrees to slaughter all the children under the age of twos. The, the priests and the scribes, they sat back and they were unmoved. Let me ask you a question. If you checked your social media accounts right now, don't by the way, and you saw that someone posted on social media that Jesus was over at the Monroe Outlet Malls. Big fan of Ralph Lauren. Amen, right? He's over at the outlet malls. Would you cut out of the sermon a little early? Would you duck out and say, where are you going? I'm going five or six miles down the road because Jesus is there and I cannot help but be in his presence. Listen, I would and I'm preaching. And we think how ludicrous would it be that Jesus would be in our geographic proximity and we would know that and know all of his claims, and yet we would be indifferent to actually go and be in his presence. Well, guess what? That's exactly what we find with the scribes and the priests. Jerusalem, where these men were, was about five or six miles from Bethlehem, where Jesus was. And when they 
hear the response of Jesus is there, they do nothing. And the priests were in charge of all the activities that occurred in the temple. The scribes were men who were skilled in understanding and interpreting the Old Testament. Now, why is that important? Because they weren't ignorant. No one could have announced the the birth of Christ. Hey, he's five or six miles away. All this prophecy that you've written down and carefully preserved in the Old Testament, everything, he's the fulfillment of all those things. They couldn't sit back and say, well, I was going to go over there, but I had no idea that things would play out this way. They were incredibly informed about how the Messiah would come and all the events, how he would enter the world. And so what happens? They're informed, but they're unmoved. And Herod gathers the priests and scribes together because he doesn't know where Jesus is. right? If he knew where he's at, he wouldn't ask them. And the reason he asks them is because they're experts. He could have went to them and said, hey, here's what I'm getting word of. And your understanding, does this fit all the criteria of the Old Testament? Is this chain of events playing out the way that you've been writing about and talking about for all these years? Does he meet all the descriptors about the coming king of the Jews? Because he knew that they were experts. And so when he asked the experts, uh, look at verse 6. They quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And verse 6 says, O you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so the text tells the location of Jesus and the vocation of Jesus. He'll be in Bethlehem. He'll grow up to shepherd his people. He isn't a king like Herod who would come and dominate his people. He is a king who comes and liberates his people from the penalty and the power of sin. And so the priests and the scribes knew all about this. They would have known all these things. And so while they're incredibly informed, their hearts are never stirred to action. Here's another phrase that we've used over the years. Your stated values are not your actual values. Did you know that? That's a discouraging thought, isn't it? Your stated values are not your actual values. You know what your actual values are and what my actual values are? Our actual values are our stated values plus our tangible actions. That's the formula for your actual values. So, for example, a person who doesn't truly believe that exercise is beneficial if they don't, in fact, exercise. That's an aspirational value, not an actual value. A person truly doesn't believe that debt is dangerous if they keep going into debt. A person doesn't really believe the teachings of Jesus are important if they don't obey them. And so that's what we see with the priests and the scribes. They're informed, but they're indifferent. Students of the Old Testament, students of the law, diligent copiers of the sacred text had lived their lives preserving the integrity of the scriptures. You think one of them would have said, man, it's just five or six miles away. My whole life, I've spent writing about this moment. I have to go and see it for myself. This is history that's come alive. And so there's lots of 
head knowledge, but there's no heart change. And if we're not careful during Christmas, that's where we can be as well. We may tell the story of Christmas. We may know the passages to point to. We can tell others some facts about Jesus. We come to church most of the time, but what Jesus is after is what the priests and the scribes fail to display. It's a heart that longs to know Jesus more. Jesus is not after our knowledge. He's after our devotion. You can imagine as a pastor, I've heard the phrase, well, just because I don't go to church doesn't mean that I don't love Jesus. I've heard that a time or 200 over the years. Or here's another one. You don't have to go to church every week to have a good relationship with God. That's true. Let me ask you a question, though. If I was married, I am married, by the way. I just, just don't get nervous. We are married. I just want to share that. <laughs> and I said, my wife and I have a great relationship, but I never went home at night. Do you think that our relationship would suffer? Don't answer that. Right? <laughs> would I still legally be married? Yes. But would the relationship suffer greatly? Of course it would. That's the same thing true with devotion and the, the devotion to Jesus Christ and commitment to the church and spiritual disciplines and all the things that God calls us to that, yes, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You don't have to go to church to have a relationship with Jesus, but can we all agree that the relationship would suffer greatly because here's what all of us know, that time invested both grows a relationship and gives importance to its testimony. And so here's the scribes and the priests, informed, knowledgeable, experts that the king himself consulted, but yet unmoved to the point of wanting to go and experience all the things they had been writing about for all of these years. This is the hallmark of cultural Christianity. Where I can tell the stories and I've got some familiarity with church and the scriptures and Jesus and I can even maybe share some Bible verses, but there's no actual devotion. I, I'm, listen, uh, these people are Christians in the same way that Olive Garden is Italian. The title is right, but the content is lacking authenticity. Amen? I do want to share that the breadsticks dipped in the Alfredo sauce is God's gift made tangible, right? I want to share that. These are people who would argue and get defensive that, in fact, they're Christians and could rattle off some church attendance and maybe some Bible stories or some verses or those kinds of things, maybe even a, a profession of faith. At some point they walked an hour, did some kind of thing. But Jesus never interrupts the actual life that they're living. They're informed, but not devoted. That was the scribes and the priests. And if we're not careful, one of the dangers of the familiarity of the Christmas story is that we can be informed and unmoved during this season. And so in Herod, we see the response that some are going to have to the message of the gospel. They're going to outwardly oppose it because there's a battle for authority. And we can, our hearts can get to the same place, even being in church. Some of the response is going to be, I'm informed. I don't, I don't disagree with any of these truths about 
Christmas or the gospel or any of these things, but, but I'm, not, I'm not reordering my life around these teachings either. I'm informed, but I'm not moved to actually do anything about it. I'm just going through the motions. And our hearts can get there as well. So we're going to find people who are going to respond that way that we encounter this Christmas season. It's the same way they responded to the first Christmas. And guess what? We can be in the same place this morning, informed, but unmoved to devotion. And so if that's you and that's where the Lord finds you this morning, I want to point this third and final response to Jesus and encourage you to ask God to help you become like the wise men because the third response is to diligently seek Jesus. There's a meme out there on Facebook, and it jokingly says that Kevin McAllister, that's a little boy from Home Alone. Has anybody not seen the movie Home Alone? Would you just raise your hand? I've never seen it. Clearly, I'm not going to heaven, right? But I know the memes, I know the general theme of the story. So he's left all alone. He's got no family. He's got no transportation. But yet, somehow, he still finds a way to make it to church on Christmas morning. And so the meme's about, let's just give up the excuses, right? Not make any excuses about skipping church or those things. Well, listen. Let's apply that truth to Jesus. Let's just apply that truth to devotion to Jesus and strip aside all the excuses to not diligently seek Jesus like the wise men. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, we don't know a ton about these, these guys. What we do know is that their response is the exact opposite of indifference. In the text, these men are called magi. Magi is the plural form of the word magus, which means great, which refers to these uh, great men. Now, it does not say three great men. People often assume there had to be exactly three wise men because there were three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The text only says there's three gifts, there's more than one man. The term is plural, but it may not have exactly been three of them. And so I want to apologize if that ruins your Christmas this year, all right? These wise men were most likely, one commentator said, God-fearing Gentiles in hiding or quasi-pagan religious men. We're not totally sure. Researchers have said they probably came from the region of Mesopotamia, likely from the area of Persia or Babylon. These men were known to be experts in mysteries. Some of them were astrologers. Others were uh, interpreter of dreams. Most of them were seekers after deeper wisdom. And it's suggested from research that they traveled hundreds of miles on foot or on beast to reach Jerusalem. Imagine the devotion. They're seeking after wisdom. They've been worshiping false gods, involved in all these astrology, these kinds of things. And yet here they're willing to travel an incredible distance to encounter the Jesus that Scripture speaks about. And yet you've got the scribes who won't go down the street or endure any travel. And they knew. Scripture says it possibly 
Where commentators say possibly view the quick math, it may have taken upwards of 40 days to travel from point A to point B. Now, i got to tell you, when I read that, I felt convicted of how quickly or how unwilling I am to persevere to wait sometimes. I'm just telling you honest truth. The other day, I pulled into the drive-thru at Taco Bell, 10 cars deep. I was furious. I just pulled out and left, right? I'm not waiting 20 minutes for horse meat. I just want to say that. (laughs) Here they are, ignorant of the truth. They're willing to travel a long distance for a long time. Start to add up the cost of a 40-day trip from point A to point B. All the food for themselves and their attendants. All the hardship of traveling great distances in that culture. Think about the time away from their responsibilities back home, whether it was work or family, that they willing to sacrifice. Think of the cost of the gifts that they offered Jesus. Staggering. And you get a better sense of the sacrifices. So what do we learn from these wise men? That they're not nearly as informed as the scribes or the priests about the accuracy of what they're doing, but they also were not indifferent. So what do we learn from them and the response to Jesus they have that we should emulate is that pursuing Jesus is not for the partly committed person. Seeking Jesus takes diligence and discipline, and it is a long obedience in the same direction. It will cost you some time, some money, possibly your safety, your reputation, your own self-exalting, self-centered agenda and dreams for your life. And we should be surprised and even suspicious, not when following Jesus costs us something, but rather when it does not. The same thing it costs them to seek him is the same thing it will cost you this morning and everyone who encounters the Christ of Christmas, personal sacrifice. I'm grieved often in current church culture when churches offer Jesus as the cherry on top of an already full and satisfying life. I'm grieved when Jesus is offered as simply a way to make your life better. Because when we study the scripture, here's what we find. Is that Jesus wasn't offering people a better life. He was offering them to die to themselves. To die to self-centered plans and self-exalting ambition. Jesus didn't come on the first Christmas and offer people self-fulfillment. He came and asked for self-denial. To encounter Jesus rightly is to experience a costly change of allegiance. And that's exactly what happened to them. Who were they working for at the beginning of this story? Herod. He said, hey, I want to worship too. Liar, right? And I know that you guys know how this thing's supposed to play out because you're experts. And so if you... Take all the things you know and you find out that this is the Jesus that you've been writing about for all these years. Let me know so that I can go and worship too. And so they go out and guess what? They're working for Herod. Their allegiance is to Herod. 
But what we see in the text is what we still find true today is that a true encounter with Jesus requires a change of allegiance. Look at verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. If you're listening, say amen. A true encounter with Jesus will always produce an inward change of allegiance that shows up in an outwardly changed life. Let me repeat that. It's a good place for an amen. You missed it. A true encounter with Jesus will always produce an inward change of allegiance that shows up in an outward changed life. A changed life where obedience is more satisfying than sin. A changed life where His glory is more important than yours. A changed life where bitterness is replaced with joy. A a changed life where generosity satisfies my heart more than greed. A changed life where apathy for church is replaced by anticipation. A changed life where work is worship instead of identity. A changed life where holiness is viewed as the path to happiness instead of the barrier withholding it. A changed life where sacrifice is welcomed instead of resisted. And so on the very first Christmas, everybody that encountered Jesus had a response. And everybody that you share Jesus with during this Christmas season, they're going to have a response. It's not your job to engineer the response. It's your job to faithfully proclaim the message. And guess what? Everybody in the room this morning, including me, is living out today a response still to the Christ of Christmas. If Jesus chose to announce his second coming to line up with the season when we celebrate his first coming at Christmas... Here's the question we all got to wrestle with this morning. Where would he find you? Would he find you with a a Herod heart? I don't know if that's theologically correct, but you know what I'm talking about. Where there's a resistance to his kingship over something in your life because it threatens your control, your sovereignty, your direction, your dreams. Areas of your life where you're resistant to his authority. Author Tim Keller wrote a book several years ago called Counterfeit Gods. And Keller said the areas that we most often resist the lordship of Jesus deal with money, sex, and power or prestige. That I'm fine with the Jesus who gets me to heaven. But in the meantime, hands off these areas of my life. Listen, that's the same heart that Herod approached Jesus on that first Christmas. A battle for his kingship and authority. And our hearts can get there too in certain areas. Maybe if Christ came back today, would he find you like the scribes and the priests? Informed at church, know the story, can quote some scripture, but indifferent. Just going through the motions, knowing the songs, but not excited to sing them. Taking notes during the sermon, but... The teaching has no bearing on the actual life that you're living. Just playing church. Informed, but unmoved on the inside. 
You know what the miracle of Christmas is? It's that Jesus came and grace was made both tangible and available to anyone who would receive it. And that miraculous grace can turn a hard-hearted Herod and a cold-hearted scribe into a wise man. That's the miracle of Christmas. Is that people who once outwardly resisted him and people who are once indifferent to him can have an encounter with the Christ of Christmas and it radically changes them by his grace. And the reality is the message of Matthew chapter 2 is simply this is that wise men still diligently seek after him. And if you're here this morning, you need a miracle where only God can change your stubborn heart or your indifferent heart, here's the good news. On the first Christmas, God did a miracle, and his name is Jesus, and he's still changing hearts today. And he'll change yours if you let him. Would you bow your head this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I just want to ask you a couple questions as a response to the truth that we've heard from God's Word today. Question number one is simply this. Are there areas of your life where you're actively resisting the authority and kingship of Jesus? You might be on a full-blown campaign like Herod was to snuff Jesus out, but you know this morning that there's some areas of your life where there's a battle for control. It may be a relationship that you're in. It may be an outcome that you desperately desire in a situation. It may be your finances or whatever it is. This morning, would you just confess that? Would you repent of that? Whatever that thing is, would you surrender that? Would you place that in Jesus' faithful and sovereign and good hands and give him that gift this Christmas season? Maybe you're here and your heart is informed but unmoved. Going through the motions, coming to church because that's routine, it's tradition, singing the songs but not being stirred to affection. So today, would you confess that? Would you recommit yourself to the Lord and say, Lord, during this season especially, let my heart be stirred to affections that result in actual obedience. God, whatever it takes to awaken me, where I'm no longer indifferent, I'm no longer content just to go through the motions. Holy Spirit, do that work in my heart today. And if you're here this morning and you've never sought Him, you've never encountered the Christ of Christmas in a saving relationship, then right now, right where you're seated today, would you pray and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Would you confess your sins? Would you express a desire to repent or turn from them? Would you declare that Jesus Christ, who was born that first Christmas, lived a sinless life, was crucified for your sins, was buried, and rose the third day. And would you receive him today as your Lord and Savior? Would you receive the greatest gift 
you'll ever receive the gift of forgiveness. Father, we're grateful. That a story that's old and familiar is still incredibly relevant. God, we're grateful that the message and the miracle of Christmas still speaks and challenges our hearts today. And so, Lord, I pray that during this season, despite all the busyness, despite all the consumers, and God, that our affections would be stirred. And once again, with our whole hearts, at great sacrifice and personal cost, would we diligently seek Jesus this Christmas season. And God, for the times we haven't, we are grateful for your grace. We pray all this in the name of Jesus because we can. Amen.